Hello and welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we are analyzing aliens in short controlled bursts. I'm John Engel. And I'm Jason Heck, back for this third show this week, and we are today going to tackle Minute 93, and that begins with Hicks saying something about activating the launch cycle, something hopeful about the old uh, about the old dropship, and ends with Ripley lighting her lighter. A beacon of hope, a beacon of rescue, a flick of the bick. And salvation ahead, maybe. Perhaps. Well, we are definitely given this little bit of hope, right? We get we we got in the first minute of the week, we got the drop ship being activated, put in motion. It looks like everything's working, like everything's mm-hmm. in working order. We don't have any glitches up on the old Salaco, so uh, that gives us a little glimmer of hope. And then we we touch base again with that idea here with Hicks talking to Bishop and getting uh, you know the launch sequ- cycle is sequence whatever activated some you know a little jargon here to just like let us know that things are still working and moving forward now one thing mm-hmm. i wanted to point out we've already talked a bit about burke and his performance in the foreground of this shot here um we get we get hicks right there in the center shot like we, mm-hmm. he, once we pan over to him and then we have gorman over his left shoulder uh, trying to be useful look at him gorman isn't, isn't that the feeling you get he's trying to be useful he seems like a good guy but he does not seem to be in charge here to me right he has utterly relinquished command and you could look at that in two ways one you could look at it as some sort of marine regulation right someone if your guy's been incapacitated or can't carry out his command duties you know, a different Miss America will be appointed to wear the crown that year. Or you could look at that and say the survivors couldn't care less about his opinions. They absolutely know that he is green. They fully blame him for the slaughter of their squad mates. And Hicks is already firmly ensconced in the role. In fact, I doesn't Burke actually kind of, uh, not Burke, doesn't Gorman kind of say good, good when Hicks says, yeah, so I think it's for pretty firmly devolved on Hicks the, the burden of command by – not necessarily by regulation, but certainly by mutual agreement. Yeah, I think Gorman fucked up. Gorman knows he fucked up. Uh, he all but said so to Ripley. She didn't really let him say it. Uh, that's what he was going to say, I think. Right. And at this point, uh, he certainly, knowing that, he certainly doesn't have the chutzpah to try to take command back from Hicks and have some sort of argument about it. I think he would, he'd, he's probably a lot happier in this new role. <laughs> like I think so, too. I mean, we can't really blame him for Pharaoh and Spunkmeyer, but, you know, beloved Sergeant Apone, uh, you know, beloved consonant repository, where's Bowski, you know, Frost, you know, the, the Drake, they, they, Dietrich, they lost uh, friends. You know, these were people who'd been together as a unit for a long time. We saw that with their insouciance and their casual attitude in the uh, in in the bay for, for for Ripley's briefing. How they were all just kind of dicking around, and they were friends. And his decision making, or lack thereof, his paralysis and indecision, cost them the lives of these people who were their comrades and their friends. I think it is. You're entirely right. He is a entirely to blame but be far more comfortable taking a back seat to a veteran who has the trust of not only the marines under him but frankly probably gorman's trust like i i i rank i I rank you but i don't know what i'm doing and i know that you've done this for years while i was you know at at tallahassee junior college in marine rotc and i i'm totally going to defer to you 
Yeah, I mean, I think when when you're in this kind of a survival mode, you're going to defer to the person that you think is most likely to to get you to survive, you know, to get you to the point where you're going to live through this. I think all the the uh, ranks and all that bullshit is out the window at that point. Like, he's certainly not going to be playing some kind of political game at this point. Exactly. Right, and we've got a plan. Why would you Why would you want to interrupt it? The plan is actually working. The ship's coming. Things, as far as they know, their defenses are holding. Power, you know, they've still got power. Defenses are up. They've, you know, if you've got the the special edition, then, you know, the smart guns have blown away hundreds of aliens. If not, then we still think the barricades are holding. Why would you want to change anything by trying to, to swing some rank at people? You, you know, just enjoy your headache. Enjoy the fact that you're still alive, despite the fact that Vasquez wanted to beat you into paste. And let Hicks do his job. Yeah, I mean, I think the takeaway really, like from a screenwriting standpoint, what you're doing with Gorman at this point is you kind of, his arc has already kind of come full circle. Like you've closed the loop on Gorman in a lot of ways here. He's been humbled. Really, all you had was like a guy who exhibited a great deal of hubris early in the film be humbled. And that's really, we don't need a big, like detailed arc description for Gorman. That's all we need. And so that's what we have. And and from now on, we're going to see him sort of taking the rear and, and not in the cowardly way he did earlier where he was hiding behind Ripley. Um, but in this case, he's going to do what he's told. He's going to try to participate. He's going to try to be useful. And right here, you get that feeling just from his body language. This is good little, good William Hope performance here i think just because it's like a very simple moment and a very simple shot but from his body language you get the idea that um that he's been put in his place and then he's willing to just help out you know we can actually really gauge is the fact that there are full four pulse rifles and four marines only three marines have pulse rifles ripley has been given the fourth pulse rifle and gorman has his pistol of course, yeah, that was uh, she was given that before he woke up, I guess. But that it, right, but, but he's a marine. Scene. He he's better trained than she is. He should have it back. Makes no effort whatsoever to get it. He knows his place now. Yeah, you would think that. Yeah, in that scene where they come together at the doorway and he starts to apologize, had we if we had a different Gorman, if we were if he was still on the same track that he was earlier, he might be insisting on taking that gun back, you know, like, well, right. You know, I've, I know how to disassemble that gun. Can you disassemble it? I can hit, you know, this many targets at this many meters and he might bluster and try and take it back. But instead he's like, okay, here, I see you've got the pulse rifle. Thank you. I'll let you keep my balls for the duration of the fight because you certainly removed those earlier. Yeah. He's done. Yep, he's done. I mean, he's not completely done yet. That comes uh, later. He's done, except for explosive redemption. But, but really, it's it's actually I, I kind of like it because he wasn't necessarily a huge asshole. What he was was insecure and knew at his job, and so so there wasn't really you know like like you're all you're all idiots. I'm in charge. There was okay. I've been you know. There's a way to do this. That's the Marine Corps way, and I'm going to do it that way. And it wasn't the right way. And so the textbook solutions didn't work. But he stuck with what he knew and got a, a, almost every you know, two thirds of the people killed. So what he is now is he's chastened, and he knows that his best shot is to just go along with his plan. And and you know he'll on the way back to earth or, or once they're you know comfortably up in the Sulaco's wardroom, he might eat with the troops this time. He might eat with the grunts and dissect everything and talk about everything 
and say, Jesus, you know, we, we, wow, we all made it. And that might be a bonding experience for him. He might have their respect if he can, if he can stand with them in a firefight and, and really do something good. But for now, stay in the background because you can't do anything with your head wound and your pistol. Yeah. Um, I did, I want to talk about in this minute a little bit about James Horner and, and the score and how it's working throughout this uh, sequence here. Uh, we don't talk about him all that much. He comes up occasionally, but I wanted to talk about how in this scene, this very, very tense scene, um, how spare he is. Like there's a, there's kind of a moody undertone going on, uh, even as we cut away from the med bay to, um, this little observation area that the rest of the Marines are in at the moment. We get this kind of an undertone going on, this like, moodiness. Uh, it's we're tense, we're worried, and and it's playing with that a little bit, but it's not ramping up drama yet. It's just kind of making us, I don't know, a little bit nervous. <laughs> and um, one of the things I really noticed here was that in this scene, the sound design is so crucial to the to the horror movie scene that we're getting here. We've got these little creatures on the loose inside of a closed space, and that's a lot, you know, to work with as far as creating a, a, a suspenseful horror movie scene. And you don't want to overdo the music in that situation. And and I love how he weaves, you know, however you want to say, say Horner weaves or the uh, Ray Lovejoy or who, however it was cut together, they weave the score in with the sound design in a really beautiful way, where it sort of holds the mood for a long time when there's not too much going on with the sound design. And then it kind of dips out as we hear the, t- the fingernail feet of the, uh, you know, facehuggers moving around the room. And that that is the worst sound, you know, <laughs> like that you could hear. That's a terrifying sound. So don't fuck it up with the score too much, right? That, that's like important here. You don't want to overdo anything. So you want to make sure that that sound is playing with the audience's fears. And and then he can come in at the right time with a, with the big music cue when the horror really, when the shit hits the fan kind of moments. And I just wanted to give a shout out to James Horner because and then the editors, uh, the sound designers, everyone that's involved in this, because I think that the way the sound works in this sequence is crucial. It could have been seriously screwed up and they do. It's pretty intricate and pretty much on the money. Yeah. Horner isn't, I, I don't think he gets enough credit for when he, he goes spare when he goes quiet, because when he goes bombastic, He's great, and, and that's what you remember. You remember, you know, the the Reliant blowing up uh, the Enterprise and and Horner's huge score, or you remember, you know, Bishop uh, showing up in the dropship and the score going super big when he rescues him off the platform. But it's he doesn't get a lot of credit for kind of going small, and I think you're right. I think this scene plays. You, you take an action science fiction movie and you turn it into a very good horror movie. For the space of about three minutes here. Yeah. And, you know, that's something else. You know, we, we talk about aliens and how it's classified uh, genre-wise. And, you know, I think everyone agrees it's more of a sci-fi action movie than a horror movie. But continually, when necessary, Cameron does a pretty good job of, of giving us ho- little horror movies within the movie. Like these little scenes, sequences that we need to, to still, I mean, we're still playing with a horror movie idea here. We're still, it's a sequel to a horror movie. So those ideas are still going to be there. You don't want to like throw them out in the, in the garbage. You know, you want to occasionally 
make a horror movie for us. Now, the whole movie itself is clearly not a horror movie, but this is a horror movie scene. And it, and it has some pretty heavy action as it, as it plays out. But these moments where we're waiting, these moments where we're uncertain as to what you know is going on, where the facehuggers are, and we're cutting back and forth between these people that are trapped inside of a closed space with these monsters to these people that are unaware of this, the only people that can help them. Uh, it's a really nice little, it's a nice little horror movie moment in this movie. So uh, sometimes it doesn't, aliens doesn't get enough credit for being at least occasionally scary. Well, I think it certainly harkens back to when the, when the squad enters the uh, under, under the processor and you're basically, you go to a, a spectacularly good haunted house movie. It's just a haunted house. that's actually made up of monsters that's you know that's that's the brilliance of the uh, of the alien nest um but that's that's also the same thing you know very a, a lot of cuts to the marines and showing how confused they are how they try and play it off with humor and then you start hitting them with the punches of the colonists and then the motion tracker goes bananas so i think that's also a really good horror movie in the middle uh and which of course then turns into an action movie with a cry of let's rock and you've got you know two smart guns unloading and and pistols and and shotgun and all that other stuff but i think it's actually a sensational horror movie before that so now we've got our miniature horror movie and how how, how's she going to get out of that uh, out of this med bay which apparently used to be a bank vault well she's going to bust out with a chair why not chairs break glass unless it's bionic super sci-fi glass uh, unless it's transparent aluminum, which is clearly God is. bless it. Yeah, I and did, it. And did you refer to this as a, a bank vault because of those uh, bank security cameras from the seventies? That <laughs> you got, you got, yeah, you got the cameras right out of dark day afternoon. But you've also got, you know, this this the, the most secure medical facility on the planet. I mean, you have to use ten millimeter explosive tip caseless rounds to get through the glass. For goodness sake. That's really funny. I actually referred to them with uh, that camera to Mitch as being the cameras from Dog Day Afternoon as well. That's really funny. Peas in a pod, my friend. Peas in a pod. Peas in a pod. Well, so I, I this always makes me cringe because I always feel like, and we got Sigourney Weaver really doing this too. So this isn't uh, any kind of an effect or anything. We really have Sigourney Weaver like slinging a chair into something right. that's not going to break. That hurts, man. Right. That it's is not a good feeling. This convention center chair that she just wails with, and yeah. and yeah, you watch it bounce off, and I don't know, she, they might have given her a little, you know, some some padding under her jacket sleeves or something, but that does look bad. She's giving it her all. Yeah, you could you could tear something doing that, it's a rotator yeah. cuff or something, or get a bad take case of tennis elbow doing that. You know, um, I don't know. I'm a little. I always worry about. <laughs> I always feel this when it happens. But it's great. That's good. It's a perfect moment. Uh, for the movie, but she, it's it's apparent immediately that this is futile. Uh, she's not going to be able to throw that chair through the window, and and this is where we get this moment where I think it's a good point to have Newt say something, like let's check back in with Newt. Now in the screenplay, uh, there's a whole all this business about her ref- continually referring to Ripley as mommy. And then changing it, going, Mommy, I mean Ripley, and all this stuff. I was so glad oh, that was barf. Really? Yeah, but it's really barfy if you're reading <laughs> oh, the script. God. You're so glad she doesn't do that because, like we talked about yesterday, I think it was yesterday, um, I, I like this idea of that they're shared survivors, not just, just a mom and, and daughter. That's, I mean, the little bit of mom and daughter is fine, but. Uh, is that the screenplay where, where she 
and Newt and Hicks land the dropship in front of that suburban house with a for sale sign. And Hicks gets out and he picks up the sign and throws it away. And they all they all go into the house and they all have a happy family. I think he shoots. Doesn't he shoot right. for sale? Right. He blows and it away. She, like an old gangster style, just shoots for sale onto the yeah onto the sign. It's, it's mommy and daddy, and it's wonderful. Oh, and it's he gets wonderful. a good corporate job. Yeah, that's that yeah. you know the Brazil uh, uh, happy ending. <laughs> right. Kind of right. So I I think you're right. I think it's a nice touch, and I like that sort of the shot when Ripley is leaned up against the glass. I mean pressed against the glass because that's the only safe spot, and we have that kind of wider shot, and you have like the glow from the little heater thing. And, and it just shows you how cluttered the med lab is. There could be anything. And you have that great pan and you just see that there are a hundred places for this horrifying thing to be hiding. And Newt says the logical thing. And that is I'm scared. And what does Ripley say? Me too. You're a little baby. Oh yes. She says me too. Again, not mincing words. Again, she's not going to lie. She's going to say, Oh, it's going to be okay. She never does any of that pandering bullshit. She's always honest with, with Newt. And she says, you're scared. So am I guess what? I'm in this with you, which is more comforting, right? I mean, it'd be more Newt knows that everything's not going to be okay. You tell, I mean, maybe things will turn out. Okay. But right well, now told, as things are, they're not. And you told Newt it was going to be okay. when you had 14 Marines, a drop ship and an APC. And she said, no, it's not going to be okay. Guess who exactly. was right. Exactly. So why lie now? So now Newt uh, Ripley says, "Yep, I'm scared too." Which I like. I like moments like this with our hero of the movie. I, I like these honest moments because we're on a ride with him. We're not necessarily looking with a hero like Ripley. We're not necessarily looking up to her as this like great super Superman type of hero, indestructible. Uh, we know they're going to come through and save the day. We're on the ride with them. This mm-hmm. is where we're with Ripley. So we're scared in the scene because of the you know, things that we've mentioned already about how it's a well-constructed horror scene to have her say it too, just fortifies that idea. Like instead of having her be hero- overly heroic, let's have her be human. And we're sharing the moment with her. Right. It's that definition of courage, which is being scared, but acting anyway. And exactly. Ripley meets that definition to a T. And not only does she meet it, but she has enough of a head on her shoulders, despite being locked in a room with her greatest nightmare. Right. That's that's the thing. She knows what these things are. She has seen what it did to a guy. And it's fresh in her head. It's not 57 years ago. It's fresh in her head. She is locked in an impenetrable room. And yet she's going to think her way out of it. And, you know, that's that's great character, right? You've got this person, like, I always posited back with, in Alien a couple of times, maybe even when you were on the show, how the whole thing with Lambert was that this is her worst nightmare. Like, the idea that there'd be aliens out there, predatory aliens, uh, was, was something that she probably thought about when she signed up for the, you know, for the crew of the Nostromo. Like, if I'm going to go on deep space missions... God, I sure hope there's not any aliens out there, like the terrifying monsters that are going to get me. And suddenly it happens, and that's, that's where, why I'm the navigator, right? I don't. I'm the navigator, and I'm physically weak. I'll never have to leave. I'll never have to leave the ship. Right, and then and then she, um, you know, has to face up to like face to face her fear. And Lambert, as a character, freezes. She's paralyzed. Right. She mm-hmm. literally cannot move. Even when somebody Parker is screaming for her to move, she can't do it. Well, right. we gotta... He could save her if she moved. He could shoot her with exactly. a flamethrower. 
So her fear paralyzes her, and, and in the end, her fear is her demise. In this case, with, with someone like Ripley, she's a survivor. She's going to do anything to fight this out, even though this is literally her nightmare. The thing that we saw her dream about earlier in the movie that is the fuel for her entire you know, motivational engine um, for why she does what she does in this movie, she's still going to take care of business. She's still going to try to stay alive. She can take action. She can think her th- way through the situation. Uh, and, and you know it's great. It's just a just a juxtaposition between Ripley and Lambert, but it's something like most of us would not be you know Ripley in this situation, right? So in that case, she is kind of a Superman hero, but not in the case in the sense of uh, she's always gonna she's never gonna be worried. She's always gonna be able to do what it takes. We're not sure she's gonna be able to do what it takes. We just know that she's willing to try to do what it takes or uh, instinctively take action. You know, in situations, so uh, it's it's a richer hero, is what I'm saying. You think she's doing it for herself, or do you think she's doing it for Newt? She's doing it for Newt. She's doing it for herself. I think it's the both things are there. I think yeah. they've established this relationship between Ripley and Newt strongly enough that we believe that she's trying to help Newt. But I don't think if Newt wasn't there, that she would be acting any different either. I think if she's in the room by herself, she's still trying to stay alive. Uh, I think survival instinct is strong. She and Newt are a pair because it was, in fact, Newt who said, break the glass. I mean, Ripley is now taking Newt's advice, or at least, you know, come, Newt is coming up with the right ideas, too. So we do have these two, this sort of sisterhood of survival. And, you know, they're both up against the glass, backs quite literally against the wall. And yet Ripley is able to think her way out of it. And thank God she's a smoker in the future. Thank God smoking made a comeback. And uh, the old Bic is going to go right up against that fire sensor and set off the fire alarm. Well, I think that's going to do it for me. I don't have anything else to you for now. Uh, I'm pretty tired, but yeah, I'm, I mean, I could go like another five or six hours. Okay, well, well, we'll do the five or six hours over the next two episodes. How about that? That'll, that'll be when we do the Berlin Austerlitz. Alexander Platt's minute. Uh, I will, that'll be a. I think we're gonna looking at a six year. I think we've got that on a six year schedule. So yeah, please like join us for the Berlin Alexander Platt's minute. Uh, coming in two thousand twenty five. <laughs> right. We hope okay. you'll tune in. All right. Well, that's going to do it for Minute 93. You can find us, of course, at AlienMinute.com, on Instagram at AlienMinutePodcast, or on Twitter at AlienMinutePod. And we'll see you tomorrow for Minute number 94. God bless. 94.